Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... We've Got Mail! Why is it a secret? I don't know, but it's very intense. <laughs> keep it secret! Keep <laughs> it safe! To quote Waiting for Guffman, why are you whispering? I'm right here. Um, this is a podcast where uh, you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. For the purposes of this email, you may call me Rockmeister McCool. And every weekend we've got mail, we read your emails. You email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, people ask us questions. People ask us for recommendations. People talk about issues that have arisen on our various podcasts or in the world at large. Maybe we haven't addressed it on our podcast. Uh, whatever you want to talk about. And we try to get through as many letters as possible. So if you want to write in, our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. We would love to hear from you. We don't have time to read every email, but we try to get through as many as we can. So let's not dilly-dally. Whitney, tell us about our first email. Okay, here is a letter from Louise. Hello, Louise. Uh, Dear Mr. Hi. Painted Bird and Mr. Step Up 3D. Nice. Which one of us? Which is you're the Painted Bird, oh, okay, Whitney. Okay, I guess you're right. Painted Bird I, is a very depressing movie. Have you seen The Painted Bird yet? No. I recommend it. It's it's misery incarnate. Cool. Um, first, thank you for helping me to sleep. Oh. Oh, you're, you're quite welcome. Pleasure. I use older episodes I've already listened to, pro uh, listened to properly to soothe my brain chatter and to fall asleep. When my doctor recently asked how I was dealing with insomnia, I mumbled something about meditation rather than the truth, which is <laughs> cops with robot partners. <laughs> I find that's a very meditative state for me as well. Thinking about cops with robot partners. Well, it's also just re revisiting yeah, old it's true. works, um, like watching old TV shows that you've seen a million yeah, times. Yeah. There's something very comforting and peaceful about it. Yeah, I, I watch like YouTube videos I've watched before, you know, just yeah. like at two in the morning when I just sort yeah. of calm, calm my brain down. Uh, second, the review of The Italian Job made me wonder, what are your favorite British or Irish movies? Oh. Uh, as a Brit, I'm sometimes very surprised at particularly British things that break out, like Mr. Bean, question mark. So I would love to know what you have seen and enjoyed. Our, a favorite of mine is Oh, Mr. Porter, a 1937 comedy about a hapless railway man sent to a tiny station who ends up entangled with a bunch of gun runners. Even after 84 years, a bad guy getting accidentally smashed in the face by a shovel is still funny. <laughs> Yours, Louise. Uh, oh, golly, British film. Um, oh, yeah, I grew up on a lot of British films. Yeah, My parents are both big enthusiasts. It's it's curious what breaks out in other countries, but uh, because uh, because of the language, we have mm. gotten a huge number of imports from England. Uh, I remember there was a gigantic influx of British films in the '90s during the indie boom. Oh yeah, well, I just started getting a lot yeah, of American uh, distributors were reaching over to England and just mm. grabbing it hand over yeah. fist. A lot of quirky comedies, a lot mm. of costume dramas in particular, and then we started getting. And I feel like there was started to be sort of um, maybe not a backlash is the right word, but. A well, sort we of, just a got certain, tired of it. I, th I, think, I feel like certain British filmmakers started going renegade and wanted to move into more of a train spotting area, to quote mm -hmm. uh, uh, Eddie Izzard. Um, so, yeah, I grew up on a lot of mm -hmm. British television, grew up with a lot of uh, British movies. Uh, I think my first introduction to British cinema was probably watching like uh, British World War II propaganda films yeah. uh, with my mom. Uh, my earliest education in classic cinema, um, I had to, I was like between schools right towards the end of a school year. So I ended up like being homeschooled for like two months. My mom was a teacher uh, and it was basically, it doesn't really make sense to drop you into a new school with almost no time left to make friends. I can give you, I can keep you abreast of like reading and math worksheets and we'll just start the school year proper next year. Mm -hmm. um, and in that time, part of the curriculum was we watched old movies. Okay. Like much like we would read old older books, 
Um, and I remember very distinctly watching Mrs. Miniver, which was a very game-changing experience for me. And we'll be talking about this in an upcoming episode of Only the Best, our Patreon yeah, podcast about every single... Uh, 1942, which is yep. when that movie came out. Exactly. And Mrs. Miniver won Best Picture in 1942. Uh, and it's a wonderful... Uh, film about a uh, sort of middle class British family trying to keep their wits and their their like hopes about them in the their, middle of the Blitz. Their stiff upper lip, as it were. Yeah. So basically, you know, every night the Germans are dropping bombs on them, and every day they try to go about their business and try to live a somewhat normal life. And it's very harrowing. There's some deeply melodramatic but incredibly effective. Uh, storytelling in it and even when i was like a little kid it just completely bowled me over so to this day that era of british cinema is very very dear to my heart um from that era um british films i feel like were a lot more graceful about dealing with world war ii than american films Mm -hmm. that is at the time Mm -hmm. uh they're more matter of fact about it. They're, they're, like, a just, they're a lot more matter of fact. They're a lot more upfront because you know it's in Europe. It's happening to them. So mm-hmm. you know, rather than make movies about how great it is to be a soldier, they're uh, making movies about here's how we survived. Yeah. And uh, and it was our the strength of our character that did it. So there's a lot of movies about the strength of the British character during World War Two. Yeah. Uh, romanticized perhaps, but inspiring to watch nonetheless. And there's also some of those were very frank about how there's a lot of people who didn't want to get involved. There's a uh, Alfred Hitchcock's one of his last British films, The Lady Vanishes, is a, on one hand a very sweet, funny uh, comedy about an elderly woman who gets kidnapped and like a young woman and a, a rather rakish young man who fall in love while trying to find her on the middle of a moving train. Um, ends up being this World War II allegory for all of these British people want nothing to do with all of this intrigue, but when it finally becomes a reality and they can't avoid it, they're actually kind of made for it. And there's something very just sort of pleasingly cynical and hopeful about it. Like, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, golly, what, what do I even pick? Uh, you know, if I'm, the I'm Third Man of, is a personal the, favorite the, the, of mine. Yeah, The Third Man One is... One of the great is, all-time film noirs. I feel like The Third Man is mentioned a lot. But yeah, from that era, The Third Man is... I, I didn't see that one until I was in college. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, when Criterion put out its DVD of it, it's like all of a sudden it looks so much better. And I, mm-hmm. I really got to sort of, uh, I was working at a video store at the time and they put it on sort of the, the video monitor that was in the store. And even just sort of seeing it across the room on a video monitor on the ceiling, is like, this is, this movie looks amazing. <laughs> I'm going to rent this tonight. And so I did. And I really fell in love with the third man. Um, trying to think of something that's like a little bit more off the beaten path. Um, what I actually, here's what I mention a lot, but um, if you haven't seen victim, Uh, uh, from 1960 that is a really excellent film um, that uh, openly uses words like homosexual and has gay characters uh, in before movies were doing that sort of thing and uh, it stars Dirk Bogard as a man who is being blackmailed and there was a time when blackmail was known as essentially the gay crime it was blackmail was the crime that was used only to extort gay people closeted gay people yeah and it's a movie all about that, and it's about how uh, it's about this fellow's uh, journey of sexuality and how he goes to places to hit on men. Uh, and it came out in 1960. You know, the, the Brits were doing this way before uh, mainstream American cinema was even thinking about doing so. It was like at least 15 more years before we'd see something like this in, in American theaters. Um, American underground cinema was doing it all the time, but uh, you know, studio films weren't touching it. 
Uh, and victim is, is I think a particularly, uh, potent one. I really like victim. Uh, I'm, I'm very fond of the Ealing comedies. <laughs> kind Hearts and Coronets is excellent. Kind Hearts and Coronets is wonderfully ambitious. It's about a guy who's like, I forget the exact number. He's like 14th in line to a title. And so he decides to kill everyone ahead of him. I think he's ninth or 10th, but yeah. It, yeah. It's a long way. It's not like some, all I got to wait is for my cousin to die and then I will become Duke of whatever. It's like, no, it's a lot of people have to die. So he kills them and they're all played um, by Sir Alec Guinness. And it's very, very bleak and very, very funny. Um, <laughs> But I, one thing I like about those movies is they're actually like, they, they tend to get painted with this broad farcical uh, brush, but um, they're very, uh, they're, there is a definite interesting sort of moral ethical thoughtfulness to them. One of my favorites people don't talk about a lot, uh, in America anyway, I don't know what it's like uh, overseas, is uh, The Man in the White Suit. Oh, I haven't seen The Man in the White Suit, oh, but so yeah, great. I, I know about yeah. it. Uh, uh, Al Guinness plays a man who has invented... Uh, Basically, like a clothes, clothes that will be completely white and perfect for forever. And the idea is like, great, this is awesome. We'll we'll sell these suits, and we will put so many industries out of work. <laughs> we have to destroy him, <laughs> and so it's all about sort of building up the entrepreneurial spirit, and then about how big business destroys the entrepreneurial spirit as fast as it possibly can because the status quo must be protected at all costs. Mm. And it's also very, very funny. Um, that's a favorite. Let's see, uh, one I saw just for the first time kind of recently was Lindsay Anderson's If with Malcolm oh, McDowell. I haven't seen that. But uh, yeah. yeah, about a, a very uh, echoes of Holden Caulfield are on it. Mm. It's about, you know, teenagers just sort of disaffected and ends up with a big school shooting. Uh, very rough stuff and uh, yeah. really, really intense drama. And I really like that one. Mm. I'm, all, I'm, I'm often surprised at the the English films that make it big in the United States because they tend to be, because they're very British. You mentioned uh, in your letter, uh, Mr. Bean mm. and how Mr. Bean is actually a very uh, English character. Yeah. But I, I think Mr. Bean has sort of a silent film quality to it, him. It's relatively universal. You can watch like, almost any yeah. Mr. Bean and there might be a few very British jokes, mm. but the Mr. Bean holiday special, because the Christmas <laughs> special Mr. Bean is, that works in anywhere. Yeah, anywhere yeah, uh, can, and, anyone can appreciate that genius and, bit of uh, comedy. And while little kids can appreciate sort of the slapstick of something like Wallace and Gromit, mm -hmm. those are some of like the most English things. You know, like uh, the, the, yeah. the string shirt that Wallace wears and the kinds of breakfasts that like, they it's eat. As, like, it's, are... it's as British as Captain America is American in yeah, a weird yeah. way. And not the same genre, but it's that kind of... Sure they yeah. are. Wallace and Gromit are superheroes. Mm. Gromit's a superhero. Gromit is superhero, yes, that's true. Wallace, Wallace is like the, the guy back at the lab. Yeah. Uh, we haven't really talked about British horror. Um, there's several British horror films that I love. Uh, the Wicker Man is one of the most absolutely just unlike anything else. I mean, even the people who try to rip the Wicker Man off <laughs> can't get it right. <laughs> no one gets it right. No one understands like the weird marriage that relation that, that film has between like serious social commentary, broad social satire. Uh, musicals and outright horror. It's a weird vibe, and, and almost you, no one gets it right. Uh, do you ever see The Wicker Tree? The sequels yeah, of The Wicker it's, Man. It's not very good. <laughs> it's not very good at all. Yeah, same same director too. You'd think it would be like interesting of a piece, mm. and no, it ends up just feeling kind of cheap and shabby. Mm. Um, uh, Dead of Night is one of my favorite horror anthology movies. It has one of the best endings of any horror movie I've ever seen. Um, I, I do like uh, the the Tales from the Crypts, the 1970s Tales from the Crypts. Oh, that's a good one, yeah. It's a, a nice, nice good uh, 
British horror films, especially when you start skewing into Hammer, you realize got mm-hmm. got to play a little bit more lurid than some of their uh, yeah, American counterparts. Uh, my favorite film of last year was a British anthology film called Small Axe. So, yeah, um, yeah. There, oh, there you go. Another good example so, right yeah, there. So, yeah, I'm still seeing new British films all the time. It's mm. a little too broad a topic to, to cover. So I'm, I'm sorry if I'm just sort of rattling No, no, it's, again, it's, it's, it's a very prolific industry over there. Mm. And they've been, they've had a lot of, and unlike a lot of countries where their films aren't, by and large, readily available in America... We've had access to a lot of British cinema mm-hmm. for many, many years. Um, we haven't talked about one of my favorite directors uh, from Britain is Mike Hodges, uh, who did a lot. In addition to doing Flash Gordon, which is great, but he did a lot of like uh, British noir, his like Croupier and Get Carter and I'll Sleep When oh, I'm yeah. Dead, and those are just vicious, mean movies. <laughs> get, they're they're get, really get good, Carter's but they're harsh. Pretty wicked film. Croupier is, is just a hoot. I like Croupier. Yeah, Croupier is. It's the movie that made Clive Owen internationally, mm. and uh, it's actually really hard to find now. It's like, little, they, yeah, it's unusual. It, it was a hit at the like, well, minor like art yeah. house hit at the time. Yeah, but, but like I heard somewhere that like they no one knows where a thirty five millimeter print is even of it. Like it's just uh, like it's well. really not taken care of very well. That's a shame. Weird. Um, but we should move on. Hopefully that gives you uh, uh-huh. some ideas of some of our favorites. But um, yeah, yeah, we 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 love our British cinema over here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, let's move on. Um, here's a letter from Justin. Hello. Um, w and W RMC. I have a good idea and a bad idea to share with you. Uh, First, the bad idea. That's free for anyone to use. Uh, There are several podcasts dedicating to watching Star Trek in various series order, and at least one show that does it in random order. Mm. How about a show that does it in Stardate order? Oh! Take a deep dive on Memory Alpha, and I don't know what to do with the new series continually piling on new episodes, but that is for the poor brave souls that might take this idea and run with it. Um, Yeah, it's... Well, I guess uh, since Discovery is done with its run in the past and season three and four and onward are going to take place in the distant future, Mm -hmm. you could still do it that way. Theoretically. I mean, again, you are going to run into another issue with, say, the movie, because the next one will be taking place again in the TOS original series chronology, even though it's in an alternate universe. So it it could get a little wonky. It's going to get wonky anyway. It gets wonky no matter how you do it. If you do it in production order... It doesn't quite work. If you do it in airing order, it really doesn't work. If you do it in star date order, the star dates were just random numbers for a long time, so it's not really going to help either. <laughs> yeah. Um, somebody did actually, and you can find lists online of somebody who's lined up everything yeah. by star date or and like bless an that actual, person. They're um, they had to keep on updating it, but there was a book that came out called Star Trek Chronology. I think they published the first one like while Next Generation was still on the air, and. Uh, They've had to keep updating it and keep updating it. You can get a Star Trek encyclopedia that just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. After a while, they just gave up. It's like, mm. we're not going to keep on adding to these books. We're fine. But I have a couple editions of the the Star Trek chronology that starts from like the creation of the universe all the way up to the distant future when they like referred to certain events. Uh, that would be interesting, but it's, I mean, it's far too expansive. Well, maybe if we hadn't already gotten through two whole series of Star Trek, this would appeal to me, but yeah. we're, we're pretty committed to our own way, but it isn't a bad idea. And if anyone wants to try it, good, good on you. I'd be curious to see how that turns out. That might yield interesting results. Uh, and now the, uh, now my other idea uh, is back to the letter. Yeah. Uh, now my other idea is uh, much more practical in comparison for the streaming club. How about choosing some movies from archive.org? We have a great collection of silent movies and other films that are public domain and not as commonly seen on the other streaming platforms, as well as foreign independent movies, stag films and porn, uh, and foreign films that might be porn with lots of plot. 
right. <laughs> My favorite collection is the German cinema from Lutz Montmartre, which is, from what I can tell, art house movie slash porn. Every time I describe Flugenschlagen, wing flapping, it sounds like I'm retelling a fever dream, and it ends up becoming a bit a bit with me trying to get people to watch. Nice. So not Flugen, Flugel, Flugelschlagen. Okay. Flugelschlagen. I'm not looking at the. I can't correct no. Whitney or not. Don't you speak German? Yeah, uh, archive.org is don't. actually... So, uh, no, I do not. <laughs> yeah. My last name is German. <laughs> I'm of yeah. German descent, but I do not speak German. Um, yeah, we haven't gone into archive.org. It's That's actually... Uh, there's a lot of really wonderful uh, untapped resources of, of places to find films online. Yeah. Uh, it, the mainstream streaming services are the ones that everybody's talking about, because those are the ones mm. people are paying for. They're the ones that get the most publicity. They're the ones that people have ready access to. The thing is, is that although people often talk about how, like, oh, listen, the, every movie's available if you know where to look, most people don't know where to look, or they don't, they're not motivated to go fishing. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are interested in movies, Whitney and I, and a lot of other people, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are highly dedicated to cinema and television history. And we're super interested mm-hmm. and we're very eager and willing to go out of our way to find something. If we're particularly excited, a lot of people just see whatever they've got on whatever service or services they already have. Mm-hmm. And so part of the streaming club is an opportunity to take advantage of, of what's already available and appreciate that it's maybe deeper than you realize. However, that is an excellent note. There's a lot of stuff on archive.org that is unavailable in other places Mm -hmm. because it's massively out of print or no one knows who owns the rights to it, or it is public domain, but it's not necessarily readily available in other places. Mm -hmm. That's a good note. And we'll look into that. That's that's also why like services like canopy is, are so valuable Mm -hmm. that, that, that connects to your local library. Uh, Tubi is, of course, a wonderful place. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're willing to, if you're willing to go into the dark places, uh, OK.ru is a Russian bootleg <laughs> website that yeah. has movies that are available on other uh, websites, but some that aren't. Yeah, uh, like, like movies that only aired on TCM once and have never been on home video in any other way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like a. Uh, if, if you don't mind going to a Russian bootleg website, yeah, it's it's an unethical thing to do. But again, I've it's said, the I've only said way before, to see some stuff. I've said before, if if there's no other way to get it, and the studio is being stingy, a pirate is an archivist. So yeah, um, that so that's that's what you're looking at. Yeah, if it's a movie you can find elsewhere, don't go to that website. No, you should. If people, if Pay the right, if the people, especially the people who made it, can get the money, but mm. if the people who own it can get the money, they won't have any motivation to release things properly especially clean them up make them look nice they're not gonna have any motivation if no one's willing to pay for it yeah. art is listen we're all we're all financially strapped god knows i am but art has value and the people who make it deserve to make a living the people who keep it alive and try to give it a nice presentation deserve to make a living at it and whenever possible we need to make sure that that industry can stay alive uh however if they're not doing their job or if it's impossible to do that job and the only way to keep a movie alive is through these other means, I'm not going to bulk. Hmm. You know, just I'm glad it exists. I'm glad it's out there somewhere. And so somewhere like archive.org, there mm-hmm. you go. That's something that we'll explore. Right. Let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Lexa. And we've, we've heard from Lexa before. Uh, this is, and Lexa says, this is the last one of these to catch up with you guys letters wise. So after this one, I will only appear. When you guys do a best of a letters episode. Oh, this is a shtick yeah. we do on The Iron List, which is yeah. a monthly podcast. Uh, 
we get to source a topic out to uh, our listeners. They get mm-hmm. to vote on a poll of four possible topics. Mm-hmm. Uh, five now, actually. Oh, five. What, what, right. what happens is there's four topics that are just sort of randomly picked. And then the fifth topic is our semi-ongoing series of the best movies that begin with a particular letter of the alphabet. We've already done A, B, and C, and this month we're doing D. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, Lexa has written in previously about mm. uh, various pieces of media uh, in any medium yes. that begin with that letter. So not this is not this just is movies, but yeah. anything else. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, the rule again is that this is uh, my favorite pieces of media from every, any type of media, starting with the letter A, going back to A. Okay, going back to A. Uh, number 10, Alice in Borderland 2020. This is a Japanese show and an attempt to move the isekai genre of anime into live action. And it does... And it does that so well, it puts a lot of its animated counterparts to shame. It's a show that has managed to leverage the change in form to its benefit, and that's something that should be commended. I've heard very, very good things about that show. I really didn't need to watch it. Um, Number nine, Afro Samurai, 2007. (laughs) One of the most interesting and probably most successful attempts to fuse anime and Western animation tendencies, and within that fusion and the amazing soundtrack by the RZA and the Wu-Tang Clan is a requisite offering that unlike anything else I've ever seen. Hmm. Also, my favorite Samuel L. Jackson performance. Oh, well, thanks. Yeah, I haven't seen Afro Samurai. I've seen a bit of it. I haven't seen a lot. Uh, Number eight, Alita Battle Angel, the movie from 2019. Uh, This is what I would call the most consistently imaginative movie of the last five years. I am constantly amazed at what I see on screen. Also, the sections about designing your own form and choosing something traditionally feminine plays really well to me, a trans woman, Mm -hmm. looking to eventually have a very traditionally feminine form. Mm. the Alita army has come after me a lot, so I'm a little bitter by uh, by Alita. Um, I think because I gave it a, a very very lukewarm review I, when I, it came out. I think the movie's biggest problem is it's trying to cram too many of the books into it's, one film. It's, it's three it, movie stories in one movie. Oh yeah, like, if, I, I highly recommend the manga. The manga is excellent. The manga is everything I love about the movies, but like it has the but room actually to breathe. Told and, in the right way. Yeah, yeah. well, it, there's room to breathe, and it happens a bit more organically in the movie. They're kind of rushing from one set piece to another, but um, I think the good massively outweighs the bad in that movie. I do I, like. I, I appreciate the effort that went into the special effects. Mm-hmm. I don't think it was always necessarily the best choice. Mm-hmm. The, the weird robot bodies with just the human faces was a, a strange choice. I think it was a kind of a waste of money. I think it was cool. Uh, and uh, if you had just made the the movie about murder ball or whatever the the roller derby, oh, yeah. Yeah. the roller derby sport because that's like a, that's like one or two books of manga like that's its yeah. own story yeah you know? just that that's yeah. the movie just the murder ball scenes yeah. no I agree I, I think they should I think they cram in too much I, but I don't I don't remember what the sports I, actually I, called I would rather I would rather have too much of a good thing than none of it yeah so uh, number seven. Am I a Girl by Poppy, 2018. Poppy Mm. is one of those artists where it's really hard to fit them into a category, especially with her penchant for genre-fusing, so that combined with the themes around identity that this album revolves around, it comes out to be a spectacular record. I don't know Poppy. I don't know that. That sounds really exciting. I'll have to check that out. Um, Alice by Arai... Arai Tasuku from 2015, this mm. atmospheric tone piece of an album uh, so beautifully balances wonder and horror purely in its production mm. that the only thing I can possibly compare it to is the soundtrack to the better Silent Hill video games. Okay. Exciting. Uh, number five, Attack the Block 2011. Yay! Uh, from this... Pre- uh, from the premise, this movie is fun, but add in the fantastic cast, this slowly becomes one of my fa- one of my comfort movies. Mm. Uh, I really like Attack the Block. Uh, I, I, I enjoyed it the first time I watched it, but every subsequent viewing just makes it go up and up in my estimation. Right, right. I went from thinking this is a cool genre exercise to actually this movie is a timeless really classic. Well this together, is really yeah. fucking awesome. Uh, 
the, it was one of those films that came sort of prepackaged from like Comic Con. They, yeah. they debuted pre approved. It's like yeah. all, all, all of the comic book nerds at Comic Con say this, be the coolest this is thing really, ever. really great. Yeah. And that nothing makes me more suspicious yeah. when it comes like pre approved from, from the Comic Con crowd. And I saw it's like, oh, wait, no, this one's actually really, really good. Yeah. Uh, number four All Elite Wrestling from 2019 <laughs> to the present. Uh, okay. Wrestling is such a specific art form. That it can be impenetrable at times, but for those who manage to get past the learning curve, it's rewarding. And personally, one of the most rewarding wrestling products might be right now might be AEW, with the perfect balance of soap opera tendencies and stunt show displays. Also, the Brody Lee celebration of live is the best two hours of television of all of 2020. I don't know all elite wrestling. Nor I. I fell out of wrestling around 1989. Yeah, so, I fell out of wrestling. So um, I was I, never in wrestling. What am I doing? I fell briefly into wrestling when I saw fighting with my family. And then that's it. You were never into WWF when you were a kid or anything? Just, just but... casually, you know, I like, had like, I played the video games. I would watch a little bit here and there, but I was never like super into it. Yeah, I, I, had, I had larger than life figures that I liked. Andre the Giant seemed cool. Like, I would have <laughs> yeah. liked to have hung out with him. But like, yeah, I, that's, that's all I had. I was never really super into it. I, I was into it to a degree. I did like gather at a friend's house so we could watch WrestleMania 3. That's how old I am. Uh, and, uh. I did get to go to a few live wrestling events, and I saw Andre the Giant wrestle Jake the Snake Roberts live. Uh, so did he have the snake? He did. Yes. And uh, and Andre the Giant refused to get into the ring with the snake because the the the, the deal was that he was afraid. Like he he could take on anybody, but he was afraid of the snake, so he would wrestle Jake the Snake Roberts, and he finally did. Oh, like, that's adorable. And, 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 of course, he, uh, Andre the Giant. Won. Okay, yeah, yeah. But he did have the snake put on him, and he really freaked him out. <laughs> Uh, I'm not. You can't really see this when they broadcast it, but when you see it live, they put microphones under the mat. So whenever somebody stomps around or lands on the mat, it makes this huge booming noise throughout yeah. the entire arena, and everybody cheers. That's cool, man. Uh, yeah, that that was that was a fun day. Um, WWF wrestling now WWE. Uh, became way too hard-edged for me. It became, like, very mm. steely and, like, bloody mm. and serious, and I'm supposed to take, like, the storyline seriously. Yeah. Even though I was a kid, I didn't take the storyline seriously. I, I like, just want to see colorful guys I, throwing each other I, around. I, when, I want, uh, when I see a wrestling story, I want it goofy. Yeah. I want... I, I do not care if it's realistic. Mm. I don't want any of that shit. I want mad scientists. I want robots. Yeah. I want people, like... <laughs> Trap doors the, the, betraying each other. Like, I want States the wildest does, shit. Does not have it right. Mexico has it right. Okay, mm. when you get to when you get to Lucha Libre and they get sort yeah. of the wild, bigger like they invented it for goodness yeah. sake. So when they get to like the wilder characters, it it's just yeah. so much more comforting. We should move on. Uh, anyway, um, uh, number three is Animorphs. By K.A. Oh. Applegate, 1986 to 2001. This was after my time, like when I wasn't yeah. really reading this the, that genre, but I know a lot of people who really grew up with this. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Sounds like a wild ride. Yeah, Alexa says, uh, this classic children's book series is honestly some of the most horrific prose I've ever come across. Yeah. Uh, simply for its willingness not to pull any punches on the brutality of war and the problems that evolved from being child soldiers. Is that the premise of Animorphs? So that was just kids with superpowers. Yeah, but they got superpowers and they're using them for, for war and shit. Oh, I didn't know that was everything I've ever, that about animals. Everything I've ever read about animals makes it sound like the most completely bug nuts, <laughs> absolutely wild. How the fuck did this get written in the first place? Let alone marketed to kids, kind yeah, of my, craziness. And I am, I am, I, I would be down for all of that. My, like I wish I had. Re- <laughs> if someone had told me because I kept seeing him, and I assumed it was just some product tie-in, you know, another Transformers, or whatever. It looks that. like a toy. If I had known yeah. it had that much personality, I think I would have read it. But I didn't find out until relatively recently. Oh, I'd, 
96, I, I, that was the year I graduated high school. Yeah, so I was, was just starting high school, and so I was a little, yeah. yeah. Past reading Animorphs, but uh, what I, I do remember was seeing them in the library and those weird covers they had where they, mm-hmm. they did... Um, With the holograms, there was a... No, no, it, it was a, a series of, of uh, pictures where on one end it would be the kid in, in question, mm-hmm. like the teenager, and on the other end it would be the animal they turn into. And you'd see them and they were like And there were like four steps in between of them, mm-hmm. like morphing, anamorphing into the animal. Yeah. And like step three was always the freakiest thing, where they're like <laughs> not quite, like they look like something in the Island of Lost Souls. Yeah. Uh, awesome. that, I, I liked that part. I have no idea what the premise of those books were. Fair enough. Uh, number two, Arkham Horror LCG, 2016 to the present. Uh, present. Uh, this is honestly one of my favorite games of all time, mm. as it both perfectly hits the complexity balance I want for a board game, uh, gives a constant stream of challenges and choices to the player, also while telling captivating stories. Uh, I've played some of those games. I think we tried to play that once, but it was a little complicated and I didn't really have time to really learn it. Uh, it's it, it's one of those games that takes like five hours to complete if you do yeah. it like with a full full retinue. And yeah, I, I, right. I, don't, I do not have the patience for those kinds of games yeah, usually. I've, I know there are board games that take like days to complete, and it's like yeah. I just Scrabble. I can I can be done in four minutes. Yeah, I love Scrabble. I'm, I'm, yeah. a, I'm a champion Scrabbler. Let's Scrabble it out. But like, yeah, I can't tell you. We but should play. We should play Scrabble on camera at some point. You and I. Yeah, yeah because uh, that's a great idea. I, I fancy myself a good Scrabbler as well. But Have we I, ever I played know. Scrabble? Not you and I. No, that's ridiculous. It's my favorite board game. Yeah, have <laughs> <laughs> we never done this? Okay, yeah, we're gonna play yeah, Scrabble um, at some point in the next year. And uh, and number one is Arrival from 2016. Yeah. Uh, every time I watch this movie, I fall in love with it more and more. The slowly creeping its way onto the, my top three of all time favorites list, and I'm still angry that Amy Adams didn't even get nominated for her role. Uh, I hope you guys have continued to enjoy these lists. Sincerely, Lexa. Well, thank you right for writing. Uh, we Lexa. love your lists. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Keep writing them. It's it's what an interesting and uh, um, what an interesting variety of things you're into. Yeah, and I yeah. and I and I this is this is why people a lot of people like look down on like the list format. Mm. Because it's seen as just kind of like an easy sort of write-up. Well, uh, not if you're doing it right. If you're doing it right, what you're doing is you're creating an easily an easy to digest well, well, series of recommendations that can be anything, and they can tell you a million things about the author. They can really put things in context by juxtaposing them next to each other. There's a lot you can do with that, and so I love these that? lists because I'm I'm constantly learning about new stuff. Uh, the the list format, it, it's easy to be cynical about because of the way the internet works mm-hmm. and uh, clicking through a list article and like turning a page just gets the site more clicks. So yeah. a lot of websites are really annoyingly laid out as a result of this. It's like, you're, you'll never believe what number three is. That kind of language isn't used anymore, but you know, it's a way to sort of lure you in rather than write something engaging. When it's done correctly, it's a resource. It's a, a collection of recommendations that you can revisit and write down and print yeah. out and, and actually go through. I, I've um, lost track of how many great movies I've seen specifically because I, I read yeah, them in a list I, and I was like, I know that movie, that movie, that movie. I don't know that one, but if it's on the same list as all these other films, I have to go see that immediately. And I, I did, uh, and I was better off for it. In my early 20s, I had three lists of films printed out and I st- in my wallet on me at all times. Yeah, I used to do that too. Yeah, because like if I'm ever like at a library or in a, a video store, it's like I'm, I'm going to want something, so I would always look mm. at these lists. Yeah. Uh, one was the first 100 Roger Ebert great films list. Okay. One was the AFI list, which I was sort of like, 
It was like the e- ringer. Even I at the I time, it was I, pretty mainstream. I, I, yeah. I looked at it the least, even though there were a bunch of films on it that I hadn't seen. And my favorite was the Village Voice Top 100, huh. where I'm learning about like George Cukar and Scorpio Rising and you know, all of these kind of outre, uh, you know, short surrealist films that I'd never heard of before. Mm-hmm. It's like, what, what the hell is hold me while I'm naked? I'm going to rent that. Yeah. Uh, uh, so yeah, um, lists can be valuable. Very uh, much so. They can also be completely value less, just depending on where, where you go. All right, let's move on. Uh, here's a letter from Jinxie. Hello, Jinxie. Um, dearest Stratford upon Avon and second best bibs. Uh, yes, I want to make a very bad Shakespeare will pun. You're the, you're really the best, Bibbs. Thank you. Stafford upon Evans. I can live with it. Um, Spider-Verse and critically acclaimed ruined me for Marvel movies. Ah. <laughs> I was one of those people who would go to the fan events with friends, and it was fun for a time. But when I watched Spider-Verse, I saw a version of the movies that I had been enjoying that was done so beautifully with such emotional moments that it changed my relationship with Marvel movies. Then you both started making points that I agreed with, especially the last two Avengers games. I hated Thanos, and I hated how they took out Thanos even more. Uh, for the most part, I haven't had too many people. I haven't had too many people uh, get very sh- let people enjoy things, especially um, except for when I suggested that the Eternals trailer looked ugly because of the coloring that Marvel uses with all of its movies. Uh, I haven't seen that. Tra- I, I haven't seen a frame. Of, uh, of frankly, the Eternals, it's the- but, yeah. It's it's Chloe Zhao, so we're all we're all excited and hoping for the best. But the trailer it does it's it doesn't look like typical Marvel stuff, but it doesn't really stand out yet. Well, I mean, I haven't seen it yet, so yeah. I can't. No, speak I'm saying, to it, they, they, it's not like you know. Ooh, it's sort of like okay. Well, maybe that'll be it's, good. Yeah. It's rare. It's rare that the that series of films feels like the work of an artist who's trying to do something. Coogler. Coogler, uh, Shane Black, and to an extent Taika Waititi. Yeah. Um, but for the most part the director kind of doesn't matter in a lot of these cases. Yeah. Even if they're super talented, yeah, they're like not allowed the, to bring a lot of themselves. Yeah. They're incredibly yeah. talented, but they're not making their movie. They're making somebody else's movie. Right. So, um, yeah. So yeah, Ryan Coogler, uh, Shane Black and like the middle third of, of the Thor movie that Ta- Taika Waititi did all yeah. feel like the part of an artist. Everything else feels like the studio running amok. I would say, I would say, uh, Captain America, the first Avenger is very Joe Johnston. That's true, but you know he he was already kind of working that way anyway. Fair enough, but I do feel like it's the way Joe Johnson would have done it. I feel very I, I, yeah, very much like it belo- it's happening fair. on the other side of the Rocketeer. Yeah, you know it's, it, it has yeah it feels like a similar vibe. Yeah. Um, anyway, I bounced from the TV shows once I realized they were not going to give me much insight as to what the world was like after the snap. The reason I'm bringing this up is Whitney has occasionally mentioned uh, outgrowing franchises. I have two questions. Mm. One, why have you outgrown a franchise? Two, Whitney has mentioned uh, how much he dislikes modern day Trek. What is it about that franchise that keeps you coming back? Thanks Mm. for all you do, Jinxie. Uh, Yeah, outgrowing a franchise Mm. is... We have this... uh, um, and Again, your mileage in this might vary, but in my experience... A lot of the people that I know, and I grew up and still surround myself with a lot of people who consider themselves geeks. Hmm. You know, they host shows about comic books and Star Wars and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's people who put a lot of investment into various franchises, and, and not just not just time and money, but hmm. like their own personal character yeah, goes heart into and it. soul yeah. on it. And 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 I got nothing against it. That's that's great. But sometimes the thing that you loved changes or you change and your connection to it can if only for a time feel more like an obligation than a passion and i think some people are not 
eager to really contemplate that and say to themselves, am I just done with insert franchise here? Yeah. Or, or, or filmmaker or TV yeah. show or band. For me, it was comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up reading Marvel comics, like really, really a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my favorite things. It's probably my biggest geekdom I've ever had. Um, I fell out of it a bit in college just because I couldn't afford comics for a while. But that's, that's a big reason why a lot of people stop. Exactly. Like, teen- teenagers. It, but it had, like. no, it had nothing to, a lot of people, you know, when, when my age are like, stop, like, oh, it's kid stuff. Like, no, there's still great art. I just can't afford it right now. And I have to pick my battles. I picked it up again a couple of years after college. I fell right back in. I loved it. So much cool stuff was going on. So many brilliant writers and artists. And then one fucking crossover event after another. <laughs> just, just one to, every to fucking year. Event there, fatigue, as they yeah, say. And, and I feel like event fatigue is underselling it. Like, it's not just, oh, there's so many big events. It's every time there's a big event, it would sort of reset the universe and, like, sort of neutralize progress that had been made and had made it difficult for any of these heroes to reclaim what could be considered a status quo. And a lot of these characters, the status quo is the fundamental metaphor. You know, the thing that grounds them, the thing that makes them relevant. Right. And if it's all about the next big plot event that's happening to the whole universe and everyone's got to get swept up in it, I lost interest in the characters because I knew that they're only going to have a couple of issues of actually doing the stuff I want to see them do. And then they're just going to have to get involved in secret invasion or house of M or civil war. Mm -hmm. And my interest in those storylines was tenuous at best. And I remember I I was still committed and I was still reading all of it because I just, I'm so, I'm so in love with so many of these characters. It wasn't until I think it was Joe Quesada Mm -hmm. who was in charge of Marvel at the time, like the editor in chief or whatever. Um, I was at Comic-Con mm. and Joe Kassad, and people, someone was asked them like about event fatigue. Like you're worried about event fatigue. And Joe Kassad said, I'll listen to the fans, but you know, if they, when they stop buying it, we'll stop making it. And I was like, okay. And that day I stopped buying it. <laughs> I stopped. I've yeah. only purchased a handful of Marvel comics in the last 10 years, mostly a couple of trades. Cause I heard like Dan Slott's Silver Surfer was good. And it mm. was, and I heard like Matt Fraction's Hawkeye was good and it was, but man, I was spending like 50, $60 a week. Yeah, I was yeah, really it's, committed it's an and I, habit. and, and it's not even a habit. It's an art that I loved, but I realized that I'm not invested in it anymore. They ruined it for me mm-hmm. and I voted with my money. Nothing changed. So I never came back, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, uh, for a lot of things uh, when I, I too, uh, I collected comics from age 12 all through high school and, yeah. uh, and I stopped when I went away to college cause I went to college out of state. I didn't have any money. Uh, I, and also I'm busy. Uh, I was, first of all, when in my spare time, I was either, um, like dating or trying to date and, uh, also watching a lot of movies. That's when I started shifting into cinema because mm-hmm. that's what I, it was a local video store. I had some time and space for that. Didn't have the money for comic books. And, uh, what happened was after four years of not collecting a single comic book, I realized I didn't need it anymore. Mm-hmm. It's like an, I was able to essentially kick an addiction and, um, yeah, I, I sort of had some things that I was still very fond of. But eventually, I, I just lost interest. Yeah. And I know that's not a very interesting story, but that happens sometimes. Well, that's, that's, you just lose it, interest. It doesn't need up. to be super dramatic. It yeah. can just be you you change and evolve, or your tastes evolve, and yeah. that's that. And there were some that, some that I took with me. Uh, like, I, I sold off my comic book collection uh, a couple of years back, and mm. uh, just 
they were in my closet. I hadn't opened the box for boxes for years. Like I don't need these things. They're not worth a lot. Yeah. Uh, so I'll just sell them all off. I sold them in like a one lump sum and got like store credit and bought like Bloom County trades instead. Cause that was more yeah. interesting to me. Um, uh, yes, I had infinity gauntlet number one. That was the first comic I bought when I was 12. Yeah. Uh, I don't even know if that's worth anything now. Probably not. If it's if it's graded and in good condition, yeah, it's probably worth a little something. No, it's just bagged and boarded. I didn't like. I'm saying if you anything. if you had it graded and it was in really good condition, that mm. might have been worth something. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, I just lost interest. The, the comics I kept were uh, my comics of the Max, which mm-hmm. was a, an incredibly '90s comic. Uh, yeah, about a uh, vaguely super. I don't want to describe it right now. Yeah. But yeah, I, I just sort of lost interest. After I was sort of forced to not collect it after a while, I just didn't want to anymore. And the, yeah. the one abiding thing uh, that sort of stuck with me was Star Trek. Star Trek and Spider-Man were like the two things I kept with me. I re- mm-hmm. was really interested in Spider-Man. But the first Sam Raimi film pushed me really far out of Spider-Man because I did not like that movie at all. Uh, uh, I, I, I wore a Spider-Man t-shirt into the theater and I wanted to take it off by the end. Like, this is, <laughs> I, what am I doing? This, this, uh, this is all like, this is what Spider-Man hath wrought is just this kind of bland entertainment. And I like the movie more than I, a lot of people did. In fact, yeah. uh, I, I watched it with a bunch of friends and they were talking about leaving, like rushing across town to see a midnight show immediately thereafter. They wanted to see it twice in one night. It's like, no, I don't want to <laughs> do Spider-Man now. And I, I was going to, I was going to skip, skip out on Spider-Man yeah. two, but like it started getting all these yeah. reviews and I love Spider-Man yeah. two. Anyway, uh, I, I do think, I do want to clarify though, that we're not saying that anyone should give up on a franchise. It's a decision you make for yourself. I just feel like sometimes we don't give ourselves permission to give up on things yeah, that we have yeah, like a lot of commitment to. We've been watching it for years, reading it for uh, years, and it feels like an to, op- yeah. it just feels like something like we have to do. And in my experience, when I'm able to admit to myself that damn it, I just don't give a shit about True Blood anymore, <laughs> and I never bothered finishing the last season. I every once in a while I think about that. Oh, I never finished True Blood, and then I ask myself, do I want to? No, no I'm, I'm, yeah. I don't care what happened to them after a while. I was really invested for a couple of seasons and then they mm. fucking lost me and I don't feel bad about yeah. that. Like, I, and, but, uh, but, and again, it's your, your mileage will vary. It yeah. will be different things, different times, different reasons for different people. I, and I've, I've been a little bit, um, maybe not confused, but I don't have a lot to relate to when I run into, uh, they're mostly like white guys my age, like guys in their 40s who are still, like, really deep into it and are, are, like, making a living writing about, like, the geek stuff. And they get just as excited as they would have when they were 12. And, like, about, like, a Marvel movie that's coming out. And, you know, they write very frothingly about it. And they're really just sort of deep into it. And I I just, like, I want to say you're 45. Where do you get the energy? I just, I'm I'm tired at the thought of that. That's, that's, that's very you though. I think everyone's Mm. got different passions. Mm. Like my dad, you know, he, he was never really into comics. He was never into a lot of this stuff that I was into, but he cared very, very deeply about ancient history and motorcycles and talking about any of those things. If something new came up or a new book came out, his eyes would light up too. And I think it's just a matter of finding what your passion is. And I think a lot of people are passionate about art. And a lot of the art that was made readily available to our generation or generations surrounding ours was what we would call pop art. Art that was very much for the mainstream, for the masses. You know, TV, comics, you know, whatever was playing on MTV musically. Um, And we have a lot of affection for that. And I don't think... It's easy to get cynical. It's easy to to sort of question, uh, you know, whether we are too connected 
to these very mainstream forms of art. Mm. And I, well, I will always encourage people to pursue all kinds of art. Mm. And just, I, I think if you're only in an echo chamber artistically and you're only consuming the same types of media, I think you're missing out. Uh, but I think it's wrong to question that passion. I think if there are people who are in their 40s and they see. Uh, a scene in the new Marvel movie that with a character they've never seen on screen before and it moves them to tears because they're deeply connected to that character. Hmm. Nice. Oh, and, and that's wonderful. Good. And, good. I'm happy well, for good, you. Good. That's that, well, that's good. Good for them. I'm just trying yeah. to, to communicate my, ex, my own personal exhaustion over this, this machine. That, I just feel like sometimes if we go into, if we is, focus too much on right. that, we, we can run the risk of making it seem like we're being exclusionary or gatekeeping, and we don't want to do that. No, I, yeah. do what you like, but mm. I, you know, I, I, um, the world is designed for people who enjoy those sorts of things, and not necessarily for the people who don't. Mm. And uh, at the moment, anyway, at the yeah. moment, and uh, what did that what, dramatically shift in yeah, the last twenty five years? When I was around, you know, in my early thirties, it's like I wanted to just sort of say out loud, "I'm done. I don't need to read comics anymore. I don't need to get involved with this kind of stuff." Yeah. And that was right when uh, a lot of the discourse and the popular culture was grabbing me specifically by the the collar and saying, "No, you need to stay interested in this stuff." Mm. Where were you 20 years ago when it mattered? If this had come when I was 15, I would have loved it. But I'm 30 now and it doesn't matter anymore. It's too late. It's too late. I can't be interested. It's okay to not be interested in popular things. It's okay to lose interest in popular things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sometimes when we express this interest, people don't take it well. Or sometimes we don't come across well. And that, that's not great. But like, we should be able to, we we should, we should should be be allowed to express, um, Allowed to express our apathy, essentially, yeah. over some of this stuff. Yeah, it should be just as okay to talk about why something doesn't work for you as why it does. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, um, I hope that addressed the question. Yeah. Uh, and very briefly, uh, there was also a question about uh, what, what I don't like about modern-day Trek. And, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, very briefly. We're I'm talking not keeping about, up on that. I can't contribute you know, we're, to that. We're ta- ta- talking about a lot of Star Trek on our other podcasts, and... We've sort of been hovering around sort of the things that Star Trek is versus the things it ain't. And uh, we've sort of we've hovered around a few topics, but like a a general sense of uh, optimism is a big part of Star Mm. Trek, a big part of uh, pacifism is a big Mm. part of it. The future can and will be a better place if we only try to make it so. uh, that a lot of the stories are about problem solving and diplomacy rather than uh, might and war. And the new stories are about might and war. They're not well written. The stories are very confusing uh, and the the characters aren't really well thought out. And they are all about extreme violence. Like somebody, the, the heroes murder somebody in every episode in the new Star Trek, even in the most recent seasons. So yeah. um, it's, it's a little too violence uh, action and doomsday machine oriented and it's uh, no wonder that the one animated series uh, mm. is actually the best that's come so far in this recent crop of Star Trek. All right. Uh, I think we've got time for one more. All right. Uh, here's a letter from Hans. Hello, Hans. Hi, Hans. Um, hello, first time writer Hans here. Hello, first time writer oh, Hans. Pleasure um, to have you. No, I'm not a villain. <laughs> like oh. every every movie with a character named Hans would lead you to, lead you to believe. It's Die Hard really is the one that did that. Yeah, well, um, ever since World War II, anybody with a German first name is is going to be a little suspicious. Yeah, um, yeah, that's yeah, a lot Eddie Izzard has has a wonderful bit in one oh, of yeah. her routines about how um, in American films Brits always play villains because of the Revolutionary War, mm-hmm. whereas uh, 
French people uh, play much more esoteric characters, and the, the quote she gives is, um, uh, my name is Pierre, I've come from Paris, I've come to have sex with your family. Uh, and, the, and the Americans are always like, help yourself, yeah. because of the debt of honor to Lafayette. To General Lafayette. You know, you know who General Lafayette is. You don't know who he is, do you? Well, now Hamilton came out. I think people do. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> thanks, Hamilton. Thanks, thanks to Hamilton, we yeah. kind of know who General Lafayette is. Um, but yeah, German <laughs> characters tend to play bad guys in American films. Um, True. Recently in your discussion of The Black Hole, hmm. uh, Mr. Rockmeister brought up the question whether Disney has ever nailed spectacle in a, any of its live-action films. I would argue that, it, yes, it has in at least one case, and that is being... Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Hmm. I recently watched this the other day, and I believe it still holds up, though as a 25-year-old, there may be some nostalgia creeping in. Uh, thanks for the excellent shows, Hans. Um, yeah, hmm. I think... I, to recap, we were talking about The Black Hole, which is this 1979 Disney sci-fi spectacular that was... They'd been working on it for a while, but it came on the heels of Star Wars and was very much Disney's response to it, and... It's an incredibly gorgeous looking movie. Yeah, great, great special effects. And the it, score really. is amazing. Like it's just a stunner to look at. The story mixed bag, but um, we were talking about how it uses it, it uses its visual spectacle less as a conventional cinematic narrative and more like an like a, a, a ride, like an amusement park experience, like yeah. a themed attraction. Come visit the black hole, that kind of thing. Um, and on that level, I think it works really, really well. Um, well, my my issue though was uh, uh, Disney is very very good at creating those kinds of ride like spectacles, but I couldn't think of an instance off the top of my head anyway mm-hmm. uh, where the story matched the spectacle. Right. That the the story uh, in the black hole is actually kind of small potatoes. Yeah. And this is standard just, mad scientist. Vibe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. and if they're going to go to and this is something that's always frustrating frustrated me about a lot of uh, genre pictures. If you're going to go to the uh, the trouble of creating these dazzling worlds and big special effects, why are you telling very usual stories within that framework? Mm-hmm. I want to see. I personally would love to see a much bigger, more expansive, yeah. much more complex. Blow my mind. Story. Yeah. Re- re- make me pay attention. Yeah. Don't just try to dazzle me and then kind of slip in this merely functional story underneath. Yeah. Um, I don't think we had a particularly long conversation about that aspect of it, but, um, you know, um, the example on the table is Pirates of the Caribbean Curse of the Black Pearl, a movie which I think is very good. It's, it's a very entertaining. It's it's got a great sense of scale. I think it's, um, I I know it's bad form to quote others reviews, but Roger Ebert, um, did describe it kind of perfectly. He said, there's a, a, like a, an A plus 90 minute movie hiding inside there somewhere. It's like two hours and 15 minutes. It's a little bloated time, but the bloat I think is part of the charm because you get to really visit it. It's not just run into Disneyland, go on one ride and get out. It's run into Disneyland and drink it in. Well, it's, Drinking it's, the atmosphere, well, you know? It's more like go on the same ride several times in a row. But, yeah, uh, but no, it's like hanging out in Adventureland, okay? You get to hang out in the whole Adventureland. You get to go on different experiences. And, oh, look, there's actually, like, multiple Pirates of the Caribbean rides. And, yeah, they've all got the same theme, but you go through a different experience with it. That's kind of how that movie kind of feels. I think it's great. I think it's a really good example. I think there's a couple other examples that we didn't really discuss. Uh, I think Tron Legacy is a really interesting film. Uh, I think it is gorgeous as a spectacle. Yeah, oh my got, god! It's got a great look to it. The look, the look, except, and the music is the, a stunner. The, the fake, uh, the animated Jeff Bridges, they didn't do so well on the, the, the big mistake they made with the animated Jeff Bridges because the whole thing is um, 
uh, animated Jeff Bridges was the star of the original movie and they wanted to incorporate his character when he was younger and so they used CGI to de-age him however the CGI still doesn't look good but it really didn't look good at the time and I think the big mistake was if we had only seen the de-aged Jeff Bridges in the grid inside the computer space i would have been very forgiving but we they show it to you it was an artificial being yeah i would have been totally forgiven and i would not have complained about it but because we see that cgi jeff bridges in the real world really doesn't work and it kind of just undermines it however i thoroughly appreciate just how sort of uh incredibly intellectually ambitious that story is about how they're really trying to tell an interesting story about big ideas about uh, mm-hmm. Sort of the uh, the creation of computer science and like the ideas behind and, computer and, programming and, and how they could connect like a, to like the infinite and religion yeah, as a there's, concept. There's a, a and, religious demand. Yeah. I wish that they had sort of leaned into that a little more heavily, but they do mention it, which it, is at least I, nice. I think they leaned to a little more heavily mm-hmm. than you than you remember because it's really an important part of the movie. And I think they they tried something really exciting there, and mm-hmm. I don't think it entirely worked, but I think when it does work, it's pretty damned amazing. Yeah, I, I remember that film being like, I liked the look of it, but I remember it being like really kind of sloppy and all over the place. It's a little but, emotionally cold. I think that's the real thing with it. I think that's yeah, the right. thing that keeps it from being, um, from really connecting. It's like that there's no like golly gee whiz aspect to it. It's actually a little dour, and I think that's a problem. Oh, okay. I think that's that, that keeps it from feeling like a fun ride. It makes it more like, um, you know, the Hall of Presidents kind of thing where it's like, <laughs> it's impressive, but I feel a little cold. You know? well, and, and that was uh, to go back to Pirates of the Caribbean. That was sort of an, and I think we're still sort of a big issue with a lot of blockbuster filmmaking. Is mm-hmm. a lot of it's presented not as like a fun ride to be had or something to enjoy, but something you need to be taking notes over. Something yeah. you need to take really, really seriously. I I've, I first remembered that about uh, the Matrix sequels. Yeah. Like the Matrix was a big hit, unexpectedly large, mm-hmm. and uh, so they rushed this sort of like two part. It's like one single two part mega sequel into production. Um, and I remember seeing those sequel, the first sequel in theaters, and how everybody was just dead silent. Like everybody's like watching this with kind of a holy reverence, like trying yeah. to to really kind of this, absorb the mythology. Everyone's like, "This is going to be our new Star Wars." Everybody, yeah. start taking so, notes now. So yeah, it's like we really need we need to know this, and I feel like that distracted from fun that could be had. The sense otherwise. of discovery, like yeah, ooh, yeah. and I, I felt that way about Tron. I feel that way about mm. a lot of the Marvel movies, and um, yeah. That was also a big problem with the sequels to Pirates of the Caribbean. They yeah. figured, they figured yeah. people, people liked the bloat that they, they figured, why don't we just make it even more bloated? Mm-hmm. Still, and, now, and now every single incidental detail that made the world feel lived in, now it's important than a plot yeah, point. Every, everything has a plot point now. and mm-hmm. like, The beads in Jack Sparrow's hair. Turns out that's what makes him a pirate king. What? Why is what? no? no was, who cares? It's just a piece of his costume. Yeah. Who cares? Oh, and the joke about how his compass doesn't work—it's actually a magic, a magic compass, and it always points where he wants to no, go. It was a joke. It was it's just a, a joke. joke from the you first damn! Movie. What the hell? Uh, yeah. Uh, so, so the, there was a, a tendency to uh, maybe feel a little too se- blockbusters that felt a little too self-important yeah. to have enough fun with them. Perhaps. Um, Perhaps. Uh, yeah, maybe Pirates of the Caribbean. I feel like the the visuals on that one were good part of the time. I think some of the CGI skeletons didn't look so great. They, they were all. Uh, I think even at the time they weren't trying to make them look super realistic because it was trying to be PG thirteen. Yeah. If they had yeah. made them genuinely terrifying, that would have been much better. I yeah. mean, it would have been cool for us, but they're trying to appeal to like 
little kids a, a too. So yeah. you want the monsters to look monstrous, but you don't want to like kids to be like, I want to go home. And like then the, the dead parents <laughs> ask for their money back. Yeah. You don't want to you don't want to cross that line. So yeah. I can appreciate that. So yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna try to dazzle me, dazzle me big. Yeah. Dazzle my mind as well as my eyes. That's well, I, that's I all like, I request. I feel like Pixar has done this a few times. I think I was, Inside mm. Out takes us on a journey we've never been to before. You know in, that kind Inside of thing. Out did it really well. I think Coco did it really really yeah, well because th- that gorgeous. takes place in the afterlife and they had this really yeah. gorgeous vista. But it's also about death and memory. Like it's actually mm-hmm. getting at bigger ideas. So that, yeah, that it's a really great travel too. log and it's a and it is also a great story. Mm-hmm. I think both of those are good examples yeah. of that. So yeah, Pixar is a good example yeah. where they they have visuals well, and story. I would even say uh, uh, Wreck It Ralph. Actually, it does a pretty good job of that, too. You <laughs> I, know, the whole visiting... I, I watched that for the second time recently yeah. with my son. He actually sat through a movie. I actually... I, I, the more I think about it, the more I prefer Ralph Breaks the Internet. Uh, okay. I think Ralph Breaks the Internet, it's actually a, kind of a more, like, mature emotional story. And I think mm. the places that they go and the way they sort of visualize the inside of the Internet... Yeah. is actually just really clever and funny. Yeah. Like it's it's a good movie, and the whole it's, bit where they meet all the Disney princesses. Oh God, I hate that. So oh, that, much. that's, that's the scene, worst part of the movie. That scene. I'm sorry. It's a, yeah. it's one good scene <laughs> with a lot of princess gags. It's funny, and then they get out. I like that scene a lot. All right. My one my one quibble is that Princess Leia should be there. Well, now that they own Fox, Doctor Frankenfurter should have been in there too. Also agreed. Oh, technically not a princess. Excuse me. <laughs> I didn't realize. Is there royalty in... in, in tra- okay. Um. <laughs> Dr. Frankenfurter is not a princess. Dr. Frankenfurter is a queen. Exactly. <laughs> Dr. Frankenfurter would be ruling the internet. Agreed. Anyway, we need to move on. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to We've Got Mail. If you want to contribute to a future episode and you want to have your emails read, feel free to email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. There are other ways to reach us, of course. You can also write us an actual letter. That's right. Some people write us actual letters, or some people like to send us uh, uh, things. Uh, to like, We've gotten cards. Uh, mm. We've gotten some DVDs and people who want us to be aware of some stuff, and that's very kind. No one's obligated to do that, but the option is available. Whitney, what's I, our P.O. Uh, box? It's uh, cr- Just write us into the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box. Uh, oh, God, oh you can do it, buddy. Fish and fish. Oh no! I was, I was trying to memorize it, and I totally blew it. Six four six four one five six five. PO box six four one five six five, Los Angeles, California nine double zero six four. Yeah, mail us a, a physical letter. We'll read that on sure this show as well. You hear a crinkle on the microphone and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Debiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. We have a Patreon page. That's Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network. You can vote for future episodes of our shows. We have a lot of exclusive shows about, as we discussed today, Star Trek. Also, uh, we have exclusive shows about uh, Batman and the Academy Awards, and we do commentary tracks, and there's a whole lot of other stuff going on there as well. Uh, we would love to hear from you there. If A lot of people are keeping this show and all other shows afloat. We're incredibly grateful to them. If you can't afford to do that, I totally get it. But if you want to help out the show, please leave us a review. Please leave us a star rating wherever you find us. That would really, really help us out a lot. Um, it affects the algorithm. It's a whole thing. I don't mm-hmm. understand it either, but apparently it's a big deal. Um, but yeah, it, even just a couple of sentences means the world. Um, and I guess that's that. Oh, and uh, don't forget to check out Assault Cat Soap, uh, the Etsy store. I run with uh, M. Lapis da Silva, or rather she runs it with me. Uh, and uh, we got a lot of exciting designs in July. There's a uh, sale. I think it's uh, 15% off all sales, $10 or more. 
so uh, head on over there. We just uh, had our 400th sale, and we re-released a shave bar that I designed that uh-huh. smells like espresso and honey, and it's really, really nice, and it's one of my favorite things that I've done. So well, Congratulations. Thank you. So that's uh, that, that's, those are back in the store. They sold out a while ago. I made a new batch for the 400th uh, sale to celebrate. Um, so yeah, that's Salt Cat Soap over on Etsy. Uh, you can also find us at Salt Cat Soap on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah. All right, so that's it for now. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Sincerely yours, Babes and Whitney.